Hello and welcome to the Big Ideas Into Action podcast from the World Resources Institute. And in this episode, the focus is on the war in Ukraine. Beyond the horror and the immediate human suffering, how is it changing the way Europe thinks about energy? We are now experiencing the, the price you pay for dependence and the critical nature of energy in the overall economic system. And what are the implications for the wider world? Russia and Ukraine combined produce about 12% of the total food calories that are traded in the world. Hello and welcome to this closer look at the wider implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Nicholas Walton. A week or so ago, WRI held a press call to examine these issues from different angles and work out which big questions needed to be asked. This podcast is an edited public version of the press call. First, the open remarks, starting with the director of WRI Europe, Stintje van Veldhoven. I think uh, my first remark is maybe a very obvious one, but still one that needs to be made. This, this war is a tragedy. And um, from the European perspective, it has altered also very much of what we thought and we knew to see this confrontation between nuclear armed Cold War enemies, um, attacks on civilians. I think we can all see the tragedy of it. But it's also shown us that Europe can be united in its resolve and that nations around the world can commit to, to immediate effective action. And I think the main impact of the war from a WRI perspective is the focus of attention this is giving to the energy transition in Europe. It was already, of course, as we all know, uh, a key ongoing issue in European politics, uh, the measure of climate action, retooling the European economy to make it low carbon economy of the future, uh, and, and how to do this now in this context without well, avoiding massive price hikes and, and uh, also in light of the different energy mix in different countries um, was already a key ongoing issue, but now it's of course become ever so more crucial uh, and political. So it is a topic that plays out very differently across Europe, depending on the different uh, energy mixes, but also it is a really a public one and it requires the consent of the people. I think all this communication with them and understanding of how to make the energy mix more resilient in Europe will really depend on very much also uh, an honest and open conversation between politicians and, uh, and the people in Europe. It will define the future of Europe as a competitive low carbon economy for the 21st century. And I think a final comment that I'd like to make here is that the time frame is so crucially important. Talking about whether nuclear should be part of the mix is amongst different European countries, always a, a heated debate, one could say. But actually, if you look at answers to this crisis, it's rooftop solar panel, heat pumps, and mostly energy savings. That would be an answer that could help us next winter. Next up, WRI's Global Energy Director, Jennifer Lakey. I am struck at this moment around a few things I think we'll need to be bearing in mind. The first is that we are in an immediate crisis and that the questions associated with uh, long-term technology deployment and development are things that we need to be examining both in terms of whether we are establishing the pathway for success in this clean energy transition as well as mitigating the risk for our consumers. And it is critical that we recognize at this moment that energy poverty and energy insecurity is something that people around the world, whether you're in Africa and you're one of the 600 million people who do not have access to energy at all, or whether you are in the Europe context managing heating prices, 
that have skyrocketed and are spiraling for you as an individual household. So I think that the questions associated with the energy transition are on everyone's mind. And I want to reflect on a few things that have struck me. First is that this fuel price spike, it requires an immediate and global response. That means we not only need to look at increasing supply or changing supply uh, routes and thinking about that in terms of uh, the uh, immediate natural gas considerations, but also, as Stinja noted, in terms of thinking about our energy efficiency, our energy consumption, and changing the demand signals, changing the demand side is the first and best option we have. Uh, to changing the trajectory for next winter and what happens next winter. Uh, But clearly that's inadequate as a response. We have to uh, reinforce uh, the economic transition that we're making towards a clean energy system. Because there is no fuel input for renewable energy, these kinds of technologies can, over time, create uh, a stronger economic value proposition for most consumers. But there is a capital cost, an upfront capital cost that has to be managed. And in looking at how we finance this um, need for energy system upgrades for technology deployment in today's market is a challenge. We know that there are a lot of programs that have been established uh, that could come to our support. And now is the time to empower massive deployment of technology that is capital intensive but where we know we have alignment between the climate finance commitments that have been taken and the opportunities for us to invest today. The systems that we need to be investing in uh, are very much a country by country assessment. Looking at energy security in a nationalistic lens is not just about looking at extraction or production of fossil fuels. It's also recognizing that technologies like geothermal technology, like hydropower, and the pump storage of hydropower can allow us to move uh, rapidly away from uh, larger fossil fuel investments. So I know that there have been a number of uh, media stories also on uh, the questions of mineral supplies, of supply chain insecurity, and clearly the question of energy transition and these various facets of the energy transition are things that each country is going to be looking at and that we need to look at collectively whether that is uh, in the short term or the long term. But we know that it is time to refocus on a clean energy economy in order to help weather the climate disruptions that may come, as well as these kinds of political disruptions that are rocking the world today. The next speaker was Craig Hansen, Vice President for Food, Forest, Water and the Ocean. I'm here to talk about the food system here and implications. We've talked about the energy implications, But the Russian invasion of Ukraine also has food system implications. It's getting some press coverage, but I would argue is going to be a major issue over the next uh, six to 10 months. That's because the Black Sea region is an important global breadbasket. In fact, Russia and Ukraine combined produce about 12% of the total food calories that are traded in the world. That's one out of every eight calories traded in the world comes from these two countries. In fact, between 2018 and 2020, Ukraine alone produced 50% of the world's sunflower oil, 10% of the wheat, 13% of global barley, and 15% of maize. It truly is, that country is truly a breadbasket for the world. Now, the Russian invasion 
has resulted in and is likely to result in a number of impacts on food systems. For instance, we're going to see a constrained supply and, and of exports of major crops, basically due to the lack of, of the ability of Ukraine to get crops out of Ukraine. And there's a big question over the next two months, will Ukrainians actually be able to plant, right, for this year's season, right? It's, it's this month and next month, the months where planting needs to occur, and then later on be able to harvest. Big issue here in terms of uh, potential global supply of very important commodities. And Russia, you know, in response to Western sanctions is banning exports of some of its agricultural commodities. So you have quite a whammy here in terms of supply. You're seeing increased input prices for agriculture and food production. Fertilizer prices are already high. They're gonna go even higher due to the constraints, especially on Russian natural gas. This natural gas is a major source for uh, input feedstock for, for nitrogen fertilizers. And Russia is in fact responsible for about 10% of global nitrogen fertilizer production. And we're already seeing increases in, in crop and food prices. They already are high, but in February, they actually spiked to a level not seen since the food crises of 2008 and 2011, according to the, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. So we're already facing high crop prices, which is an effect. Those folks, especially the most that are most food insecure and can't afford to buy food. Regions particularly affected by this will be the Middle East, in North Africa. So this is an area that we really need, the world needs to look at very closely and have a solution for in terms of food security, but also say we have to look at it from a climate security perspective as well. There are some responses that could actually make achieving food security and climate security at the same time very, very difficult. For instance, the response could be to actually plow up more land to expand the area of, of cropland across the planet. There's a significant risk that the price increases we're seeing right now in grains and vegetable oils will increase deforestation in the tropics, as well as lead to uh, the plowing up of conserved grasslands in the temperate region over the course of this year as an attempt to make up for the foregone production from the Ukraine. Doing so would actually put global climate goals at risk. Likewise, there's a risk that a response might be to shift to biofuels for transportation to relieve price pressures to petroleum. But right now, the, the planet's facing such a food security crisis is not the time to do that because at this time we need crops for food, not for fuel. So what can be done? What are some positive things to be done that actually beat both the food security and the climate security issues at the same time? One is keep agriculture markets and trade flows open. What we saw in the 2007, 2008 food crisis is that a big part of the price increases were caused by export bans that countries put in place in a misguided attempt to shore up their local supply. We need to actually keep the flow open so we can en enable the trade of the commodities that can still be traded to help keep prices down. Secondly, the world needs to double down on efforts to reduce food loss and waste. We live at a time where one third of all food is lost or wasted between the farm and the fork. So reducing that effectively means increasing supply to consumers. Third, we need to double down on efforts to close the crop yield gap in a sustainable manner. This is particularly important with, for smallholders in food insecure regions, Africa and elsewhere. This is critical for food security. So we need to double down on closing that yield gap. Fourth, nations need to consider curbing crop-based biofuel mandates to help free up crops for food, not for fuel at this important time. And finally, we need to support the UN World Food Program hunger relief efforts to address the acute food crises in vulnerable regions that we'll be facing over the next several months. The final opening remarks were from Dan Lashoff, the director of WRI United States. 
I want to join my colleagues in expressing just unimaginable concern for the humanitarian crisis uh, that's happening in Ukraine. At least for me in, in the U.S., it, it is truly unimaginable because we're, we're somewhat insulated, but we're not fully insulated. And with high global oil prices and rising food prices, there is an impact on uh, U.S. consumers that is uh, certainly very significant for lower income families and a real strain on the budget. And it's important to note that this is not a function of the U.S. importing Russian oil. Um, The United States has moved to ban imports of Russian oil, and that sends a powerful message. But even if we had never imported a drop of oil, because oil is a global commodity, the run-up in global oil prices would have an impact on the U.S., on U.S. consumers and the U.S. economy. So how do we deal with that? Now, some members of Congress have proposed ramping up oil and methane gas production as a response to the high prices, but that really is a fundamentally flawed response uh, for several reasons. First is the one that Stinja mentioned. It takes a long time to bring any new fossil fuel supplies online, so it does not offer any kind of quick fix to the high prices that we're seeing now. Second, we can only remove President Putin's ability to use energy as a weapon by ending our dependence on oil and methane gas once and for all. And third, increasing fossil fuel production would only extend our dependence on fossil fuels and exacerbate the climate crisis, which has its own economic and security impacts on the United States and the rest of the world. So that's not the right path. So what can we do to relieve consumers' uh, pain at the pump and boost our energy security? A couple of things. First, in the short run, the most obvious response is to be blunt about it, give people money. If budgets are impacted from high energy and food prices, uh, we've seen from the experience with the emergency response to the COVID pandemic that providing extra money in, in people's budgets, whether that's in the form of the child tax credit or uh, just direct payment checks, is the quickest and most flexible way to deal with those impacts. And that then gives families the option to use that money to, to pay the higher price that, that they're facing at the pump, or they can choose to use that money in other ways to improve their budget as they uh, switch to public transit, or if they're able to move to an electric vehicle or an electric bike to replace their gasoline consumption. Secondly, this is a moment to double down on accelerating the transition to alternatives to oil. Things like the extending the electric vehicle tax credit, uh, which is pending in Congress, is an important step forward. And I wanna emphasize that that doesn't give a benefit only to the people who are able to buy an electric vehicle, but it actually helps other budgets in two ways. One, by putting downward pressure on the price of oil, albeit over a longer period of time but also a downward pressure on the price of electricity because uh, as electric vehicles, as long as they're charged smartly, you are actually spreading the fixed costs of the electricity system across more kilowatt hours 
that actually can lower electricity prices, uh, something that's often not recognized, but it is an important benefit of electric vehicles if they're integrated into the grid in, in, a, in a promising way. And then in the very short term, um, as, as Stinja mentioned, uh, various conservation measures, I'd point to the International Energy Agency report out today that points to 10 very near-term measures that could be taken uh, to reduce oil consumption. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast on the wider implications of the war in Ukraine. After the opening remarks, there were questions from the journalists present, and we'll feature a few of the answers. First, a question for Craig Hansen about why he thought export restrictions for food were a bad response to shortages. In 2007-2008, there, there was a food price crisis, and one thing that happened is a number of nations to help conserve or in an attempt to conserve and increase supply domestically, they prevented the exporting of locally grown or nationally grown agriculture commodities outside of their borders for fear that that would actually, that food would then disappear from their own local, local supply. But the, the thing is, is, you know, the agricultural system is a global system. Um, you have areas that are, there's comparative advantage to different countries on terms of crops that, that countries can grow. Um, few places are completely self-sufficient. And what happened then is that by making the barrier, it actually raised prices even further because you couldn't get that that free transfer and the open transfer uh, of crops across borders to take advantage of comparative advantage of some places can grow vegetables better, some places grow grains better, et cetera. It actually made the problem worse. And so in places actually kept borders open and allowed for the exportation and importation of of foodstuffs, uh, the prices stayed lower. And so this is really an example where what might on the surface seem like a smart strategy, lock in what you domestically make, actually makes the work, exacerbates the problem domestically. You want to have open borders and that open trade for those for the food commodities. Next question. Our country is going to be pushed towards fossil fuels by the crisis in Ukraine. Here's Jennifer Lakey, followed by Dan Lashoff and then Stintje van Veldhoven. You know, I think we are at a moment where there is more planning that has been done about a just transition approach at this juncture than there was when we started the COVID crisis. And that's not to say uh, that the world hasn't has done what it needed to do in response to COVID. And our analysis shows that most of the world's uh, governments actually increased their resilient uh, the reliance on the fossil fuels through the kind of uh, programming that they put in place for their stimulus packages. So that um, must immediately be something that is taken into consideration right now. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's not um, it's not without note that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a stranded asset, the first major stranded asset that we're seeing coming forward. Um, and for any oil and gas investor at this juncture uh, that looms large when they think about longer term uh, infrastructure that they may be considering in response to this crisis. As Dan said, that takes a decade to get developed and, and to move forward, In what, at which time the world should have moved beyond the need for that new capacity. The second thing I'll say about the, the importance of this moment is that there are a whole series of programming efforts that have been uh, initiated with investment uh, partners around the world on renewables and on energy efficiency. And if you look at a place like India that has had tremendous success 
in putting out and putting forward a energy access programming. Um, while the reliability may remain a concern, uh, the kind of uh, programming that, uh, that, it, that India has taken forward to reduce energy poverty and improve energy access is certainly an indication that when pressed, there are the political opportunities and moments to take um, significant ambitious action. Uh, the World Bank and other international institutions need to step into this moment. Um, they have been under-investing in energy efficiency technologies. And when you look at their portfolios, the grappling with these large-scale projects and the lack of a flexible, nimble, smaller-scale effort to support uh, distributed renewables and to, to support uh, the types of energy-efficient technology integration, uh, this is the moment where they're going to have to innovate dramatically in order to respond. And I think what we do know is that this level of mobilization is something that every country is going to examine their own pathway around. And I would note that places like Latin America, um, which have now been moving rapidly into the scaling of renewable uh, electricity options for wind and solar uh, technologies, can also alleviate the supply side pinch in terms of their contributions by putting renewables on the grid faster, whether that's an electric vehicle rollout, um, which we're seeing in Colombia and elsewhere. So uh, this global interconnectedness of the system has advantages in terms of freeing up resourcing if we are um, smart about doing it. Final point, the fairness and the inclusion kind of factors that we need to be putting in place with packages like was brought forward for South Africa in the last COP, uh, that type of package has been uh, something that many of the world's governments have been looking at in the preparation for this next COP and looking at African countries and other developing countries as well. We can't take our foot off of the accelerator. And in this moment, it is even more important that the world's governments recommit to putting together those kinds of packages and programs to allow for the development of energy, clean energy resources to go forward in all countries, even as they grapple with the crises at home. I'll just add quickly, I mean, the, the good news about the clean energy transition is that the price of solar has declined by uh, around 90% in the last decade, the price of wind about 60%. So these technologies are now the cheapest way to generate electricity, which means that the faster we make that transition, this was true even before the run-up of prices as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's even more true with higher prices. Um, so the faster we make the transition, actually, the lower the cost to economies. So there's a compelling reason to do that. From a U.S. perspective, with respect to poorer countries, I, I think there is definitely a role in terms of accelerating the, the uh, availability of capital, because there, there is an upfront cost, obviously. To realize those benefits immediately, you have to finance uh, the investment, and the U.S. certainly has a lot of finance capital available to do this. And I think that is uh, a role the U.S. can play uh, to help in the rest of the world. Even I would like to add something to this uh, after everything that's already been said. I think things that can be done quickly is uh, save, has already been very much outlined, diversify, also technologies and partners, electrify, uh, taking away uh, dependency on gas. But you can also even speed up building regulation. I know that's one of the elements that the EU is, uh, is taking up in their package uh, to see if they can, uh, can reduce the administrative burden for actually either uh, investing in, uh, in grids or in, uh, in renewables. 
um, also uh, speeding up, let's say, changing regulation on providing state aid, et cetera, where necessary. So these are all short-term measures. And I think uh, what's also crucially important to see is that these measures are just not just important because of the geopolitical situation and the dependency of Europe, uh, but also uh, other regions. It also really just saves money. So it, in the context of high prices, saving is crucial also for bringing down the energy bills of people. Uh, and of course, if we all save, this will generate also an overall decrease in demand and thereby an overall decrease in pressure on the prices. So it really is that double-edged sword. It's the one thing that we can do quickly, swiftly, and it has all these benefits. And for Europe, at least, I think the International Energy Agency has calculated that the amount of gas that you could save by turning down the thermostat by one degree is as much as you could save by building heat pumps and solar panels in one year. So it really is, is enormous, uh, the potential of energy saving. The following question involved a bit of future gazing. What did the panellists think the situation would look like a year from now? First Steencher, then Jennifer. Going along those same lines that I just outlined, countries can install policies subsidising people to invest in insulating their houses, for example, often the most effective measure actually for bringing down energy bills. Uh, it, it repays itself, right? So it's also an investment against energy poverty in the longer term. Uh, this is something which can be done fairly easily. Then, um, uh, let's say, electric, electrify, changing when your, your heating is, is up for change, uh, giving a subsidy to change your gas-fired heating, uh, which is common in, in, in many individual households, for a heat pump is a solution that can be subsidized and can be implemented fairly quickly. I think there is not the technology or the money, it's probably mostly the having sufficient technicians to actually do the work that's going to be uh, difficult there. And of course, some countries uh, have more res residential heating uh, systems that are based on, on, uh, on heat uh, distributing. Um, and for that, uh, the situation is more difficult. You can't just easily uh, switch to a heat pump there if you have a block heating, for example. And that is, I'll come to your, your, your next question, where do we need to be careful? I think we would need to be careful with over-reliance on, um, on bioenergy. I think Craig already outlined the link to, uh, to the food crisis, which uh, is also imminent. So let's, let's make sure that we don't try to solve one crisis while making another worse by an over-reliance on bioenergy. It doesn't mean that we can't do anything, but let's please make sure that we assess what are the impacts on food and all, over the longer term, also on the, um, uh, on the climate crisis. Then um, I think that in, uh, uh, in terms of innovation in regulation, where can you cut corners in regulation? Where can you facilitate the, the speed in your buildup of, for example, uh, offshore wind. I know the Netherlands, for example, has, has a, uh, announced today that they intend to double their ambitions for offshore wind. Uh, so what can be done to, well, of course, making sure that you, uh, you are responsive to all of the important factors that need to be taken account can speed up these kind of regulatory processes that can also happen. Yeah, let me chime in on a couple of things. So first and foremost, governments can change taxation policy for emergency reasons. The kinds of taxation structures, whether that's in uh, value-added taxes, whether that's in um, depreciation treatment for equipment, there is a, a whole series, there are a whole series 
of taxation steps that could change the economics of some of these investments. And that would be an incredibly powerful thing to do right away. The second thing is around behavior, and, and Stinja mentioned the dialing down the thermostat, but there's also technology options there, digitalization technologies that allow for optimization of energy. The kinds of um, demand response programs that utilities have played with have not gone to the, the extent that they could in terms of creating incentives for consumers to shift their demand to help moderate the dramatic spikes in use at certain times of day. So the demand response programming by utilities, uh, the taxation policies of governments, and finally, the kinds of um, direct consumer rebating and uh, incentive packages that could be put in place to help buy down the cost of investments and upgrades in homes, businesses, schools, healthcare facilities. We know that in the past there have been those types of, uh, you know, uh, vehicle swaps in the United States, that there have been um, rebates for uh, efficient uh, furnaces and the like. That kind of consumer programming does have a significant impact. And let me just offer that it's also an employment opportunity. At a moment where we have many people who are impacted financially from COVID and who are just coming back into full employment in many parts of the world, uh, the opportunity to invest and use government support for energy efficiency could create an entire workforce of trained professionals that would allow us to make this transition more equitable with more economic opportunities over the long term. And as Dan mentioned, there's also this opportunity, a huge opportunity in the transportation sector for government to do better procurement of electric vehicles, electric buses. There's also the opportunity for the government to do procurement around embedded carbon content of government uh, investments in procurement strategies. For Europe, we are now experiencing the, the price you pay for dependence and the critical nature of, of energy in the overall economic system. And so I think that will at least be a very forceful memory for Europe uh, as to the need to see if we can become less dependent. Well, the way to become less dependent, the most secure way to become less dependent is to start producing yourself. Uh, and what can Europe produce itself? That's uh, renewable energies in terms of wind and, and solar. And so I think the underlying memory of this, this crisis, which is also an energy crisis for Europe, will certainly galvanize the need to, uh, to invest in renewables. Uh, and in the short term, indeed, uh, we need to solve Europe's problems for the next winter. And, and it's uncertain how that mix will play out. It might also depend on how much energy savings Europe is actually able to, uh, to realize. Um, but I think in the longer term, I would expect Europe thinks twice about wanting to pay this kind of a price again and will really try to become at least less dependent on one partner, uh, but really also diversifying sources. The next question concerned liquid natural gas and whether we are likely to see extra investment in LNG infrastructure as a response to the war in Ukraine. Here's Jennifer, then Steencher. We have seen now firsthand the challenges of stranded assets and the pipeline infrastructure that was developed with specifically to provide uh, natural gas into Europe. I think that there is going to be a a reluctance uh, by many investors uh, who are looking at potentially significant losses if the overinvestment in LNG. However, 
that doesn't mean that there isn't going to need to be and that countries aren't looking at um, the uh, some level of dynamic security of supply uh, that might create um, a, an interest in LNG terminals. And I think part of the question that they're going to be looking at is, is there another pathway? Can I build something instead of this LNG uh, terminal approach? And my equation for this is that the fundamental security question of LNG as a fuel is going to be called into their uh, concerns, right? That is going to be a top concern. Um, and that that will have a mediating impact on how much additional LNG people are looking to include in their plans. But that will require that the world focus on offering an alternative technology. The pathways for the industrial deployment of LNG are much clearer to most energy policy makers and most industrial partners that they communicate with. So there's a path dependency that we've seen in the energy investment space, and that has to be broken. We need to have those alternatives come forward rapidly and win very good terms, right? We can't assume that the higher interest rates that are being offered for renewable investment in much of the world uh, can compete against fossil now, what will be the cost of the, of the finance for fossil going forward? I think that will be going up as a result of this ser serious invasion repercussions and the disruptions. But are we also going to see the cost of financing the alternatives come down as part of the financial system's response to this emergency? And that's what I think we have to call on. We need those investment promises that have been taken in the energy transition space to materialize in new terms and conditions for the deployment of these technologies. Thanks so much, uh, Jennifer. And if I, if I may add, if I, if I look at Europe again, um, the, in, the investments or the, the capacity which is currently there in terms of LNG terminals is about 40% of the current gas, gas demand, but it's unequally distributed. And one thing to remember about Europe is that every country has such a different mix of energies and dependencies and infrastructures. So there are some regions that have very little access. So there could be a point from a strategic point of view, again, uh, even beyond the, the energy mix point of view, again, of ensuring that, for example, the Baltic region and Southeast Europe uh, get better access to also LNG in the context of diversification. But then that should be seen as a geopolitical choice and not necessarily a choice which on its own meets the, the entire element of LNG in the future uh, overall energy mix. So this, this independence part and this, uh, this connection part is also something which plays out very much in Europe and will define part of the, the strategic investments that will be made. So the question whether it's a stranded asset or not also depends on the geo geopolitical relevance of this particular investment uh, next to the price and to the part uh, that LNG will play in the overall energy mix. Finally, a question for Craig. Is he concerned that food supply problems and price rises could have the result of pushing some middle-income countries into food insecurity? Yes, I am concerned. Prices are already rising, as the, as the questioner mentioned, and this is just exacerbating uh, the price increases for the reasons I mentioned before. The, uh, the regions to look out for are, again, Middle East and North Africa, especially some countries uh, such as Egypt are particularly at risk here of the pricing issues. If you think about, you know, if you're looking at where Russian exports, just take wheat, just for example, you look at who's buying wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Egypt is a major buyer of wheat from both, from both countries. 
Tunisia, Nigeria, Yemen, Turkey, uh, but then in Asia, Indonesia and Bangladesh are quite significant buyers of, of wheat uh, from, from, from those two countries. And so we, we are concerned that the broader, broader food community is concerned about uh, pushing some countries that are already for a variety of reasons, edging towards food insecurity that this could actually just push it over the edge. At the same time too, there are other global phenomena happening. I mean, climate change is affecting some of yields already, uh, soy and in, 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 in Brazil and Argentina, the yields actually are low. There's, it's, it's, it's a lower uh, production this year than, than, than in the past, which is going to put pressure on, on soy as well. So we have other phenomenon going on that are just, uh, that will for certain um, countries that are dependent upon these grains will be pushed towards uh, greater food insecurity. And that was Craig Hansen finishing off this special podcast on the energy and food implications of the war in Ukraine. You also heard from Jennifer Lakey, Stinche van Veldhoven and Dan Lashoff. And you can also find a related insights article from Dan on our website, wri.org. You can find all our podcasts on our website or subscribe on whatever app you use for your podcasts. I'm Nicholas Walton and thank you for listening. Listener.